Okay, good morning everyone. We have the privilege of studying Parshas Kiseitse together, one of the richest parshas in the whole Torah. And I define wealth, the richness here, by the number of mitzvahs. In fact, Parshas Kiseitse has the most mitzvahs of any parsha in the Torah. Anyone know how many? How many? I thought you'd never ask, Gigi. <laughs> there are 74 mitzvahs in Parshas Kiseitse. So in many ways, Parshas Kiseitse is really a uh, microcosm of the whole Torah because the essence of Torah, Torah is Torah. It's instruction. It's a guidance. It's a manual for life and for living. And so Parshas Kiseitse is about how to mold and craft ourselves into vessels, vehicles to fulfill the divine will, to fulfill the will of Hashem, to live our life in a mission in terms of repairing, perfecting His world. It's a very beautiful medrash towards the beginning, bless you, of our parsha that says, Amr Pinchas ben Chama, Every place you will go, whatever you are doing, the mitzvahs will accompany you, the mitzvahs will be your companion. Minayin, how do you know that? If you're doing construction, you're building a new home, you're making a door, the mitzvahs come with you. It says, Because you got to put a mitzvah on that doorway. You're going shopping, you're buying new clothing. It says, You've got to be careful of the ingredients of the clothing you're buying. It can't have a mixture of wool and linen. You're going to get a haircut? Don't think that you're doing some mundane activity. There's a mitzvah. You've got to tell the barber, if you're a man, you've got to tell the barber, you can't use a shaver around the area of the payos. You have a field and you're going to plow. You're not allowed to plant kilayim, uh, a hybrid of different, uh, of different uh, grafted... What, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Species. Thank you. I may have mentioned, I, I, um, I asked Rav Asher Weiss Shaila recently, he wrote me a whole tshuva which appears, I think, in our new volume of Yadrim coming out this week. Someone had purchased a tree that was made of multiple different citrus fruit. It was grafted together, a hybrid of oranges and grapefruits and lemons and tangerines and many, many species of grapefruit fruit, tr- fruit into one tree. And uh, when you purchase such a tree, you can then plant it in your own backyard and it will grow and you can benefit from all those citrus fruit in one tree. They wanted to know, is it a shaila of kelayim? Do you have kelayim within one, within one uh, type of citrus is one type of fruit? Or is it only integrating different types of fruit? He wrote a whole tshuva. So you're going to plant in your field and you have to know, is it kelayim? You'll read the Yadrim, it's coming out, second volume. Even if you're not doing anything, you're not getting a haircut, you're not plowing your field, you're not buying new clothing. Nevertheless, the mitzvahs are always with you. You're walking on the way and you happen upon a nest with a mother bird, even there. So it's such a beautiful imagery of this medrash. Unlike other religions where religious activity is relegated to a sacred space, to the religious center, to the religious uh, house of worship, in Yahadis, our magnificent Torah tells us mitzvahs are malave. Wherever we go and whatever we're doing, the mitzvahs are a platform for a life of mindfulness, of consciousness, of conscientiousness, a life of invitation and opportunity to connect to the Ribbon Shalom. You're going for a haircut? 
Everyone else is watching whatever's on the TV or reading whatever the magazine. It's a mundane activity. Is there anything more mundane than getting your haircut? Taking a haircut if you're from New York? Is there anything more mundane? And yet, if you're a Yid, if you care about mitzvos, and you're instructing the barber what to do, it's a holy activity. Planting, plowing, getting a haircut, shopping. It's not such a holy activity. My daughter's here, I have to... That is a profane activity. Someone else's credit card, maybe it's a holy activity. But if you're shopping and you're buying clothing and you're having a check to make sure it doesn't have shotness and you're making sure it it's, 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 uh, conforms with the rules of modesty, it's such a beautiful medrash that our magnificent parsha, replete with 74 mitzvos, that the mitzvos are each an invitation, an opportunity to remember there's Hashem. Each is an opportunity to remember to live a mindful, meaningful life. That we don't just engage in accumulating and amassing more and more and more, but rather every activity throughout the day, nothing is mundane or profane. Everything is charged with the opportunity for it to be a beautiful mitzvah. And the uh, medrash, another mitzvah, another medrash rather says similarly that this is what it means when we say, Chaim Kulcham Hayom. The medrash says so beautifully, Hashem didn't leave anything in the world for which there's not an opportunity to do a mitzvah. And what's a mitzvah? Mitzvah is not some random reward and punishment system. It's not like you get to earn points or raffle tickets through some random activity. Hashem through these activities is saying you can engage the world blindly, mindlessly. You can engage the world superficially as, that, as if that's all there is. Or you can engage the world with panemius, with depth, seeing the deeper meaning connecting with the symbolism, transcending and transforming ourselves, living at another plane altogether. You could take a haircut, or you could be doing a mitzvah. You could be plowing a field, you could be connecting with Hashem. You could be shopping for the latest style, fad, or clothing, or you could be avoiding shotness. Each of these activities. So, There's no area of life and of the world where Hashem did not give a mitzvah. That's what the Pasuk says, Laman Taskilu, not Nar Parsha. But it says, Laman Taskilu. Taskilu means not to become, become a masculine. What does it mean, masculine? The Targum says, Laman Taskilu, Laman Tatslichu. How do you lead a successful life? By being plugged into everything you're doing. Don't take anything for granted. Don't do anything superficially. Don't see anything as mundane. Live life in high definition, high spiritual definition. You could live life in black and white, or you could live life in high spiritual definition by seeing the mitzvah opportunity, the lohiniyach davar ba'olam, shalonasen ba'mitzvah li'yisrael. Everything. I said before, from the way we wake up and the way we tie our shoes. The Shulchan Aruch tells us the proper procedure, the order to put on your shoes and to tie your shoes. We've been watching a lot of wedding vimeos in my house. I don't know if you know what that is. Everyone who gets married now is like a celebrity. They make a three-minute like video like uh, you'd think the, the royal wedding. They're able to produce like a movie-quality wedding. It includes the beginning, the chasen putting on his shoes and tying them and the cufflinks and the watch and the kala with the thing. Beautiful, you cry, the music, amazing. But, but like 80% of the, I'm watching these videos and my daughter will tell you, I'm going crazy. They're putting on their shoes wrong. This is like the ABCs. How can you get married? You don't even know how to put your shoes on. I don't mean they're tying their shoes wrong. They don't know how to make the bow. I mean, there's a halacha. Your right shoe, your left shoe, then you tie your left shoe, then your right shoe. Why? Why? Who cares? Is there more a mundane activity in the world? on planet earth than how you put on your shoes. Who cares? If you think it's a result-oriented activity, all you want is the result. You need to be wearing shoes. You need to be wearing shoes so you can traverse the world and be independent. If it's result-oriented, who cares what order you put on? 
But if it's Laman Taskilu, Laman Tatslichu, if you want to lead a mindful life, if you want to not just do the result, the, the superficial, but you want to connect to the panemius, then you understand what is the significance of the right, what's the significance of the left, why is it different for when you put it on versus when you tie it, what is the symbolism of tying. All of a sudden, the process of putting your shoes on in the morning is not just a mundane activity to get you off to start your day. It was a religious activity how you put your shoes on. How you put your shoes on. You got to get it right. Because HaKadosh Baruch is taking the wedding Vimeo for all of us every morning when we put our shoes on. He's watching the Vimeo every morning. Did we get it right when we put our shoes on? So therefore, the Medrash concludes. This is the Medrash Rabbah in Parshas B'Shalach. Here the Medrash concludes, Kozman she'atem udubakim b'mitzvos, v'atem advekim Hashem alakechem, chayim kulchem hayom. You want to be really alive today? Chayim kulchem hayom. You want life to be yours today? You want to be alive? What is the formula? Kozman she'atem udubakim b'mitzvos. Atem advekim b'ashem alakechem. Cling to Hashem. How you get a haircut, how you plant the field, how you shop at the mall, how you tie your shoes. Cling to Hashem, welcome Him into each and every activity. And then Chaim Kochem Hayom, then you'll finally and maybe firstly be truly alive. So that's just an overview. Kiseitze is 74 mitzvot, the most in the Torah. It's 74 invitations out of 613 that we have every day. Hashem says, Hi, I'm here, I'm texting you, I'm making a bid for connection. Remember me? How you put on your tush, make a bracha, come out of the bathroom, go shop and get a haircut, and so on. There are each opportunities to connect with Hashem. So the parsha begins, we'll do our overview of the parsha. Lately we haven't been doing so great at getting back to analyze the specific psukim, but we'll do our best. Overview of this rich parsha. There's so much. It's so exciting. It's hard to decide what to talk about and what to leave out. The Torah parsha begins by describing not a utopian world, not the world as a perfect place, but the Torah is directed to humanity. Frail, faulty, shortcoming, struggling, weak people. The Torah was not written for angels. The Torah was written for us. That's why, I don't want to go backwards, but I'll say for Bracious, our heroes all have major shortcomings. They all have major shortcomings. They're not simple people. What makes them heroes is not that they're perfect, because then they would be unattainable and accessible. They'd be terrible role models. What makes them accessible role models is they were imperfect. The Torah is filled with a guidebook for how to live as perfect a life as you can when you are struggling with being imperfect. So, here you have the Jewish army goes out to war, on your enemy, and Hashem gives you a captive. So, what do you do? Ooh, is a beautiful woman, and you're attracted to this beauty. So what's the halacha? You got to peel back the layers of the superficial beauty. She has to. Sh- you can have her. Torah lo Torah. The Torah is speaking to soldiers, and soldiers. We know historically, soldiers at war are not the more most morally centered in the area of promiscuity. And the Torah understands that, and the Torah makes an accommodation for that. But the Torah says, before you indulge in that, here's what you got to do: you have to shave her head, and you have to take off the garments of her captivity and her nails, and she has to sit and cry over her parents for several, uh, for a period of time. And only then you could take her as your wife. So the Torah puts in all these parameters that stack the deck against you, making it unlikely that you're actually going to follow through. On Sunday I gave a shir on the Slonim Rebbe, you can listen online, the Nesiva Shalom talks about, all the Hasidus sees this, 
the Orchayim in many places here describes in a time we're living in which it doesn't apply to us collectively in Israel of course it does our heroes in the IDF it applies to but let's say we're here in America where we're not in the army so which war are we fighting? who's Oivecha? who is our enemy? I spoke about this last week the same words appeared in Parsha Shoftim our enemies are Yetzahara it's our alter ego it's that voice of self-sabotage the voice telling us to hold back from being the best version of ourselves. And we battle. We go to war. I don't want to repeat the whole shir. You could listen to it online. But the Salaam Rebbe talks about the methodology we need to use to defeat that alter ego, that voice of self-sabotage inside us. How do we do it? We take it captive. We capture the Yetzirah. We take it captive. And then what do we do? That Yetzirah is very superficial. It makes us believe it's beautiful on the outside. Oh, it's beautiful to eat that chocolate cake. You won't clog your arteries and make your blood pressure go up and give you diabetes and kill you. On the outside, it's beautiful. But you've got to shave her head. You've got to peel back those clothing. You have to sit and cry. You have to see the the inside of it to understand. And then we redeem the captivity. We bring out the core, the kernel of good that is within it. Again, the Slanam Rebbe develops it at length. Rabbi Salavitchik has a little bit of a similar perspective. Here in the Rav Chumash, he says, the Torah warns us that after we go to war and are victorious in battle, we may see something that appeals to us, symbolized by, our yifaz, by the Yefas Toar. Sometimes the Yefas Toar, the beauty of Yefes, is worthy of emulation. At the same time, there may also be corruption in Yefas Toar. Beneath her attractive exterior lurks moral perversion. Torah tells us if you're only interested in her appearance, in her long hair and fingernails, those same fingernails will be used to scratch you. She must first shave her long hair and remove those fingernails, as the Ramban explains. Beneath the attractive exterior of the Yafas Ta'ar lies vulgarity and immorality. She may ultimately offer something useful in terms of culture or wisdom, but you must first reject her immorality. One must distinguish between the unclean and the clean. Very beautiful imagery. Again, the symbolism of the Yafas Ta'ar. Yefes. Greek culture that, that worshiped the body, the form. So on the one hand, it gives art, and it gives beauty, and the form, and exercise, and the Olympics, and so on. But if you see that as an end to itself, right? If, if you worship that, then in its core, it's vulgar, it's perverse, it's immoral, it's corrupt. And we see exactly what it's led to, a society that is obsessed with the superficial and with the exterior, with beauty and with the aesthetic, at its core becomes morally corrupt. But if you peel back that layer, those layers of Yafas Toar, you could reveal the beauty inside. The Rav continues, the Torah never restricted us from absorbing the positive aspect of other cultures. When Yaakov and his sons left Canaan to go to Egypt, they left an agrarian society and were confronted with an advanced technical civilization. The Egyptians had great architects and artisans from whom B'Tzalah learned the skills to build the Mishkan. Jews have never been forbidden to learn mathematics, medicine, science from the non-Jewish world. The Rambam writes that truth is acceptable, should be sought after no matter from whom it comes. Knowledge can be attained even from the secular world. But when it comes to matters of sanctity, of Kedusha, Jews must be ever vigilant. There is no shortage of vulgarity, egotism, or impurity in that world. When learning from the non-Jewish world, the Jew must draw from the good, while at the same time rejecting its corruption. The Eishas Yifas Toar is a metaphor for the attractiveness of the wisdom of the secular world. Take its beauty, take, extract from it what's appropriate, but peel back the layers to reveal what's inside to make sure that we're not engaging in its, in its vulgarity. Okay, so that's the story of the Eishas Yifas Toar. Torah then goes on and talks about next.
the uh, the Bechor, who has the right to Pishnayim, the elder son has a right to a double portion. We today, um, not only don't we do this, we are discouraged by men, our great rabbis. It's an unusual thing that we're discouraged from following the Torah prescription for something. We have, the Torah itself, provided what one might call a legal loophole to avoid having to follow its formula. But in today's day and age, when society was once set up, that the Bechor, the firstborn son, was presumed to, atta- to have to take over the position of his father, to protect the family, provide for the family, and to be the patriarch of the family, it made sense that the Torah gave him the resources to take over that position. But in a society now where siblings see themselves as equally independent, then it would only alienate and aggravate and divide children to apply the Torah principle. So not only do we not do it, but we're discouraged from following the Torah prescription for giving Pishnayim, and we have ways to avoid it. For example, you have halachas of, of Nachala that um, daughters don't inherit, only sons. Is this misogynistic? Is it biased? Does it feed a narrative that the Torah is some horrifically discriminating uh, entity? Chas v'shalom. God forbid. It's the same reason. It was presumed that the brothers would be taking care of their sisters. The brothers were the ones working the field. The brothers were the ones breaking their back. And they had a halachic responsibility to care for their sisters. So the Torah gives them the estate to position them to be able to care for their sisters. When the sisters will get married, they'll be provided for by their husbands. Society was once set up in that way. Today, when it's not necessarily set up in that way, of course we can adjust our wills to be able to honor providing for all of the siblings equally. You have to do it halachically. We have an incredible mechanism to do it. It's one paragraph that has to be added at the end of a will. And it basically says the following. The father, before he dies, he can do it retroactively. A moment before he dies, leaves an enormous debt to his daughters to be paid from his estate that goes to his sons. But the debt is forgiven if they agree to follow the terms of the will that include the daughter. So again, there's a retroactive debt the father takes on to the daughter for $25 million, assuming he's leaving an estate less than that, then he agrees to forgive that debt on condition that the sons agree to follow the equal distribution of the, of the inheritance. It's very, very important to have a halachic will. There's a lot of emphasis on a halachic living will, which tells us about the rules for how we die, end-of-life situations. But it's also important to biblical law to have a proper halachic will to be able to, um, to, be able to lead, leave things the way we want. Ben Soro Amora is the next section. We've spent a lot. Our rabbis extract from the story of the Ben Soro Amora a story that never happened. Yernidachas never happened. Ben Soro Amora never happened. There's several sections of the Torah which our rabbis have a tradition. They never happened. Lo hayav lo never, never happened. I, why do we have it? In order to study Torah, to extract principles, even though in practice it never happened in this way. So from the story of Ben Amora, we extract many principles about parenting, about rebellious children, about the responsibility of parents who contribute to having produced that rebellious child. The halacha l'salin you can't leave somebody overnight hanging on a tree. A corpse has to be... Um, buried. We have this today. Halachically, with refrigeration, does that change if you put greater honor by delaying a funeral? Can you delay the funeral? And so on. We have the halachic concern for another person's property. If you see somebody is 
animals collapsing under their load, you can't look the other way. You've got to get involved and you've got to help. The halacha of, you have to... Um, Hakem takimimo, I'll put it this way. The halachic emphasis on maintaining the boundaries and distinctions that Hashem set up in this world. So just like species of produce and of uh, garments and people, different genders of people need to honor the gender differences. It applies in the plant world, in the animal world, and in the human world. We have to honor our boundaries and differences in order to have the equilibrium of the world the way that Hashem, the way that Hashem set it up. We have Kikari Khan Sipur. What's the halacha if you come across a nest and a bird? Is this a halachic obligation to send away the mother bird? Is it only if you want the eggs do you send away the mother bird? What is the nature of it? The Gemara says that... Um, don't anyone who says that the reason we're doing it is to be sensitive to the mother, we silence such a person. Do we silence them because that's not the reason? Do we silence them because we're not supposed to talk about reasons? This is the source of the whole discussion of Tame HaMitzvos. Do we learn? Do we talk about the reasons for the mitzvos? There's a big danger in doing that. We have a halachic obligation when you build a new house. We talked about this in the parashat year in the past. You can listen online. A person who builds a new house has an obligation to build a fence, build a balcony on the staircase, put a pool fence around your pool. It's also a halachic obligation. You can't bring a rabid dog or a wild animal. You can't have danger in your property. We are responsible. We are accountable. We discussed it at length in the past. I think we did a whole parsha year specifically on the mitzvah of ma'akeh, of having a barrier around the roof. But here in the new Rav Chumash, I'll just read to you what he says, because I think it's very insightful. In the halacha, the principle of the vulnerability of man plays an important role. We have many laws pertaining to safety. Our code is replete with them. These laws are rooted in the notion of human exposure to the so-called accident. Not only the body is vulnerable, but the human spirit too is vulnerably exposed. The whole concept of construct, construct defense around the law is rooted in the notion of the vulnerability of spiritual man. The spirit, the human intellect, the human fantasy are exposed to all kinds of pressures and influences. That is why offense is necessary. Man is vulnerable both as a physical being and as a spiritual personality. The vulnerability of man is more than just a tragic truth. It's an ethical halachic postulate. The awareness of vulnerability of being exposed engenders many ethical virtues, among which the most important is humility. Man must practice humility. Pride and vanity are both degrading and corrupting. Humility is the highest ethical virtue. The Ramam even suspended the rule of the golden mean vis-a-vis humility, writing one must be of exceedingly humble and lowly spirit. So the Rav is seeing the obligation to put a fence around our property. If our property represents our arrogance, our ego, our success, putting a fence means having a boundary. Living life with a healthy dose of humility. Human pride and arrogance disappear the moment man becomes aware of his vulnerability. Right, that's the symbolism. Why do you put up a fence? Because you could fall off the roof. A person is, needs to be aware of their vulnerability. That if they come close to the edge of the cliff, it's dangerous. So you need a fence. You need a fence to make sure you don't fall off the roof, the balcony, the edge of the cliff, the staircase. So the fence is the Torah response where the Torah wanting us to maintain an awareness of our vulnerability. Vulnerability is healthy, says the Rav. Why is vulnerability healthy? Because it breeds humility. And humility is this cornerstone of our existence and our relationship with Hashem. The awareness of vulnerability is cathartic. It's cleansing. It's an awareness that ennobles man, has a redemptive impact upon him. Humility is the expression of this 
awareness. So that's when we build the ma'akeh, we're building that fence to be watchful, to be vigilant. It's reinforcing our sense of vulnerability. Vulnerability is healthy because it brings a healthy sense of humility. Beautiful, symbolic, again, coming back to the medrash we began with. Everyone else is just building a balcony. Should it be metal? Should it be wood? What's the height? What's the space? The railing is beauty ornate, ostentatious. What should it be made of? That's what everyone else is focused on. What are we focused on? Oh, railing, vulnerability, humility, makah, it's a mitzvah. These are invitations. We don't live a mundane life. Every moment, every decision, everywhere we go, the Torah, the mitzvahs are malava. They come with us and they give us a prescription and an invitation to a noble, to live a noble life. We, uh, the mitzvah of tzitzis, the prohibition of shatnas, you got to get things checked for shatnas. You can't defame a married woman by falsely accusing her of infidelity. If it was true, what's the, concept, the consequence? Adultery. The different marriages. This is the part we're going to come back to. Whom we are forbidden from marrying. Who cannot enter our DNA. And why we don't want them within our DNA. Which is also an important question. What is it about their lifestyle that eliminated them from being part of our, our DNA? We have the uh, story after that of... When you're at war, you might think, well, human life is so vulnerable, so frail. Who really cares? So many soldiers in the Israeli army, they smoke or their moral boundaries are struggling because when, when it's, you know, every day you could die, so what's it really worth? So the Torah goes out of its way to say, that we have to preserve an attitude of sanctity in our camp, even when you're at war. And the uh, Torah tells us exactly how. And this is a Torah source, by the way. Vayam Kodesh is the Torah source for um, the laws of doing holy activities around unholy dress, odor, activity. So for example, there's a whole discussion, I think we've talked about it in the past in the Parsha Shir as well, about our attitude. How has indoor plumbing changed Vayam Kodesh? In the old days, there were outhouses and people needed to eliminate where they could, and you're not allowed to daven near that, and you can't make a bracha near that. Well, is, how, is, how is the indoor plumbing and the fact that we flush away um, and preserve a certain level of cleanliness, can one make a bracha in the bathroom? Can you wash your hands in the bathroom? Do you have to wash your hands outside of the bathroom? There are halachic literature about how indoor plumbing and the fact that our bathrooms are infinitely more clean than any outhouse or that halacha um, anticipated. How does that change halacha? It's something very fascinating. But here too, the Rav has a homiletical interpretation, a symbolic interpretation of what this mitzvah means of, of the uh, Your camp has to be holy. Why does your camp have to be holy? Hashem's in shul. Leave me alone. When I go to shul, I'll behave. When I go to shul, I'll dress my best. When I go to shul, I'll put my best foot forward. When I go to shul, I'll present myself as holy. But when I'm home... When I'm in my machana, when I'm in my camp, eh, let me dress how I want, let me speak how I want, let me watch what I want. Torah says, no. Hashem lokecha, mishalech bekerav machanecha. Hashem's walking around your house. Hashem's walking around your camp. Says the Rav, Judaism explains the concept of holiness from the perspective of the secret of contraction. Holiness is the descent of divinity into the midst of our concrete world. It is the contraction of infinity within a finite bound of laws. 
bound by laws, measures, and standards, the appearance of transcendence within empirical reality. The task of man is to bring down the divine presence to the lower world, to his veil of tears. The perfection of creation is expressed in the actualization of the ideal halacha in the real world. In halachic man, the Rav writes, that's where that excerpt come from, comes from, but the Rav writes, we're trying to give Hashem dira betachtonim. We dafka don't say God is relegated to the heavens, to the upper world. He's down here. This is where we reveal Him. This is where we engage Him. This is where we find Hashem. He is walking around of machanecha in the way that we keep our camp. In the mentality, in the mindfulness, in the mode with which we live, we are inviting Him to dwell with us. He is contracting from a place of infinity. He's practicing tzimtzum, to coexist, to live within our midst, and that's exactly our mission, to be able to bring Him down. We have the Torah prohibition against interest. Kliyakar is a fantastic interpretation. I reserve the right to come back to this another year. We'll study it more in depth, but I just happen to see it this year. Kliyakar says, why is there a Torah prohibition against charging interest? There's nothing unethical about charging interest. There's a time value to money. If I lend you $1,000, I don't have access to use it for the year. My $1,000 could have earned whatever percentage. I lost that money. There was a time value to the money I lost. So the fact that I asked you to make up the money I lost by letting you have liquidity and use it during the year, there's nothing unethical about that. I know it's not unethical. How do I know it's not unethical to lend with interest? Because you can do it to a non-Jew. So it can't be unethical. So first of all, if it's, not, if it's ethical, then why can't I do it to a Jew? So the reason is because, you know, if a stranger says, look, I need $1,000, I can't pay certain bills, I'm happy to pay you back 5% because that's what you make in the bank. I'll give you 5%. So you're allowed to charge that interest. You've done nothing unethical. Why? You would have made 5% in the bank. You're out the 5% if you give it to him. If he's willing to pay the 5%, there's nothing wrong taking it. That's if a stranger comes to you. What if your brother comes to you and says, I can't pay my bills. Would you lend me $1,000? Well, if you'll sign here and you pay me back at 5%, you're a jerk. What kind of person does it? It's your brother. So the Torah says, when it comes to a non-Jew, a non-family member, you're allowed to make interest. There's nothing immoral about it. You could be the bank. But when it comes to a Jew, every Jew is your brother. Don't lend with interest. It's not nice. It's just not nice. So that's why there's a total prohibition of interest. But the Kliyakr adds another dimension. The Kliyakr says, why can't you charge interest? Because if you're charging interest, it means that you don't have faith in Hashem. This is what he writes. I'll read it to you in the English. The reason for the prohibition is because it causes people to cast away their trust in Hashem. With all of the businesses, one raises his eyes to Hashem because he's not certain whether he'll earn money or he'll lose it. But when you lend money with interest, your income is set. It's certain. You're not afraid you might lose the money that you lent because you took collateral. Therefore, lending the money with interest thwarts one's bitachon. The borrower also transgresses because he causes the lender to lose his bitachon. It's known that those who lend money with ribbis are generally stingy people far from giving tzedakah, and that's because they lack bitachon. So the Kliyakar says, if you're, normally you do business, and you don't know how it's going to come out. So you daven, you shuckle, you say pitta maktoros from a klaf, you're doing all kinds of schoolers, because who knows if you're going to be successful in business. So the fact that the uncertainty of your business, the uncertainty of the stock market, the volatility of life, only promotes greater amuna. Who knows how many people you're going to move that week or the construction you're going to do. Who knows if you're going to make money. So therefore it promotes a greater sense of the presence of Hashem. But when you do a business activity that has a guarantee, you've taken collateral and you're guaranteed a certain interest. Say, thanks Hashem, I'm good, I got this one covered. I don't need you. I structured this deal, I'm good to go Hashem, never mind, I don't need you. I'll see you in a month, I'm taking a vacation from you. Kliyakar says that's why there's a Torah prohibition against ribis to not put us in a position where we think we don't need Hashem. 
to not put us in a position where we're going to lack that sense of bitachon. Fantastic. Good. We have the worker's right to eat. The, the employer has certain obligations towards the employee. Employee has obligations to the employer, and the employer has obligations to the employee. Yeah, Rabbi Fox. Yeah. Really, we cannot be accused of discrimination because of that. And the reason is because non-Jews can take interest from us, do take interest. Right. Whereas one Jew is not supposed to take interest. Exactly. It's mutual. It's not showing discrimination. Right. We're not, Jews are not just taking interest from non-Jews. Right. We, reciprocally, Jews are not doing it from one another. Besides, what would Shakespeare write about if we weren't uh, in the position of lending with interest? <laughs> so, we played a great role in society by doing that. It actually preserved us. It kept us around. In many host nations who wanted to eliminate us, the economy was dependent on the Jews and until they determined it wasn't, we don't need them anymore. And then their economy failed and they took away the expulsion and invited us back. So thank God we were decent bankers. So the Torah continues, divorce and remarriage, kidnapping, saras, timely paying of workers, all kinds of halachic questions about the timely paying of workers. I'll give you a great shayla, a great shayla that appears in halachic literature. Can you pay a babysitter? Let's say you have a babysitter, she comes comes up today, you could do it online, there's apps, you could transfer money in the blink of an eye. But when my kids were younger, when we didn't have older ones to babysit the younger ones, you'd have a babysitter, sometimes you didn't have cash. But you don't want to send her to drop off the babysitter without paying them, you felt terrible. So what would you give her? Usually a her or a him? A check. The problem is you can't cash the check at night. So have you violated the prohibition of not paying the worker on time because maybe they have the check, but you can't cash the check at night. The bank is closed. Is that a violation of paying a worker on time? There's halakhic literature, there's discussion about it. Some say, but more in Israel than here, you can endorse the check and use it like cash. So it has a value, since you can endorse the check and transfer it. I don't even know if that's legal, but many people do it. So does that make it as if it's liquid, so you've paid the person on time, or no? It's fascinating halachic literature about, about this law, but a person has to be very careful with this law to pay people on time, pay workers on time. Being careful with the gift, the, the uh, widow and the orphan, gifts to the poor, malchus, lashes. There's a lot of Torah about this. Gavarabba. Um, yibum, the mitzvah of Yibum, chalitza. Honest weights and measures. Having honest weights and measures. Torah uses a term here. We refer to certain activities as to'eva. It's an abomination. And it is. Torah calls it an abomination. But we forget, it's inconvenient to remember, that the Torah also calls dishonest business practices a to'eva. It's an abomination to cut corners, bend the rules, cheat on your taxes, report things as business expenses when they're not. That is as much of an abomination as anything else that we view as behavior which is morally corrupt. And then our Parsha ends with a familiar passage. We know it not usually from this time of year, although we should from the end of Parsha's Kisetzeh, but we know it from Shabbos Parshas Zachor, Shabbos before Purim, when we have the biblical commandment to read this section, which by the way, if for whatever reason you weren't in Shul Parsha Zachor, you could be Yotze, that annual mitzvah, except in a leap year, because it's 13 months, so you won't hear it in time, the Chassam Sofer points out. But you could be Yotzei this mitzvah by listening in Shul this week to Parsha Zachar, Zachar, Sashar Solacha Amalek, Baderach B'Tzeschem Mimitzrayim. Remember what Amalek did to us when we were on the way. I think we've discussed this also at length, and there's a lot to talk about here. 
You could listen online previously. I'll just share a couple extra nikudos this year. I saw a beautiful insight Rav Melech Biederman brings down from a sefer called the Tefer Shmuel. It says, Timcha is zecher Amalek. We have to erase the memory of Amalek from where? Mitachas? From under the heavens. Just say erase the memory of Amalek. We don't live on top of the heavens. So you don't have to tell me where to erase it. I know where to erase it. We're down here. We're not up there. Why does it say mitachas hashamayim? So the Sefer Tefer Shmuel says, this gets to the core of who Amalek was and what they were trying to accomplish. Who is Amalek? Asher korcha baderech. Rashi quotes here. Karcha can mean several translations. One is asher korcha means when we walked away from Harsinai, we were on fire. We were on fire. Amazing, inspired. We were on fire. What did Amalek come? And what did they do? They poured water on our fire. They extinguished our fire. They took away our joy, our fire, and they poured water on our fire. They extinguished it. Asher karcha. Kor, cold. They poured cold water. Another interpretation of karcha is lashon mikra. What does the word mikra mean? It means happenstance, chance. The core of the philosophy of Amalek is the exact opposite of what Parshish Kisetze is all about. We said, nothing's mundane or profane or random or chance. There's 74 mitzvahs on our parsha. How you tie your shoes, how you get a haircut, how you shop at the mall, what you eat, and how you grow your food, how you have your animals treat one another. It's all part of Hashem's prescription. There's depth to everything. Comes along Amalek and says, there's depth to nothing. Everything is superficial. Everything is random. Everything is chance. It's the ultimate of what we in our generation experience as cynicism. That cynicism, there's nothing that's really meaningful. There's nothing that's real. Eh, eh. To mock, to scorn, to laugh at, to be cynical about. That's the philosophy of Amalek. It's mikra. You think Hashem took you out for this reason, He gave you that, and you're going to live this charged life? Let me pour cold water on your fire by telling you it was just a coincidence. Let me pour cold water on your fire by telling you there's no God. He could care less about you. He doesn't care what you do. He's not trying to help you. Life is just random. Nothing happens for a reason. And then you'll be warm food. That's life. That's a malik. It's what Rafutner calls koach versus koach I've written about this several times. Rav Hutner says that Amalek's philosophy is koach They're machalal. They profane everything. We see everything as holy, as sacred, as amazing. Einstein said there's two ways to live life. That either everything's a miracle or nothing's a miracle. That's koach and koach achilol. Amalek lives life and says nothing's a miracle. It's all chance, random, it's nothing. It's absolute cynicism. We live life with koach the sense of awe. These are the yamim no rhyme, the days of awe. We are filled with a sense of awe. We see the greatness, the beauty, the depth, the opportunity, the connection to Hashem within everything. The koach hahilul within everything. I wrote about last week or two weeks ago, the trip to Montana and the connection with nature that a person who makes a hefsek, you see manai ilanzeh, person is learning on the way, and they say, what a beautiful tree. So, says the mission of us. And we quoted the commentaries who say, no, it's when you make a hefsik. If you look at the beauty of the world, and you see that as separate from the experience of Torah. Rav would say, the koach is, you walk around, you say, wow, that's amazing. It was after the article, I saw it only a couple days ago, in the Sefer Zriya Ubinyan, Ravolbi writes the same thing. 
when Revolba talks about our responsibility as parents raising children, he says, how do we instill a sense of awe in children? Not by being sarcastic and cynical about everything. So someone says, wow, what a beautiful painting. You know, eh, I've seen better. What a great musician. Eh, I've got better songs in my iPod. Oh, what a magnificent uh, architecture. Eh, I said, if, if, if our children sense from us that we have an awe of nothing, nothing is worthy of awe. They won't have awe of Hashem. But if our children see from us that we can't pass a flower without saying, look at this flower. Do you see Hashem in this flower? Look at this moment. Look at this view. Look at this experience. Look at this seeming coincidence. Hashem is in everything. Says Revolba, that's how we instill within our children a sense of living life with awe. And when you live life with awe, ultimately you'll see Hashem is worthy of our awe. That's what it means. Yamim no ra'im. So therefore, Zog the Heila got to Shmuel. What's the pshat? How do we destroy Amalek? Timchez Zecha Amalek. Where? Mitachas Hashamayim. Erase Amalek's heretical claims that everything happens under the heavens here on earth. It's all chance, it's all random, it's all nothing. What we're destroying, Timcheh, what we're erasing is the philosophy of Mitachas Hashamayim. It's not that you're erasing Amalek from under the heaven. What we're erasing is a philosophy of under the heaven. We're erasing the attitude of Tachas Hashamayim. That what you see is what you get. This life is all there is. There's no meaning, there's no order, there's no purpose to it. That's what we're erasing. Timche, erase the philosophy of Tachas Hashamayim. Erase the philosophy and attitude of all that we have is what we can see here on earth. And I saw in the Sefer, Imre Chaim, the vision of Tzorev, the Imre Chaim, so he says, Chazal Amru, the Gemara Pesachim says, whoever is arrogant, their wisdom is taken away from them. Arrogance, we lose our wisdom. So Amalek is gematria ram. Amalek is the same numerical value as arrogant, inflated, haughty. So says the Vishnu Tzirebbe, the Imre Chaim, that the mitzvah of Timcha Zechra Amalek is erase that arrogance. You come back to the Rav about the vulnerability, the Maka, the fence, the feeling of vulnerability we're supposed to have. Amalek doesn't feel vulnerable. They feel impenetrable. They feel immortal. Amalek says, there's no God. I'm in control of my own destiny. I don't need God. It's the arrogance that prevents awe. People who don't have awe of anything, the cynic who says, eh, about everything, at their core, is incredibly arrogant. They're a balgaiva. Nothing is worthy of all because they're so great. That's the philosophy of Amalek. So the gematria of Amalek is Ram. And Timcha Zechra Amalek, the mitzvah to eradicate Amalek, is to eradicate an attitude of philosophy of Tachas HaShemayim, that what you see is what you get, to eradicate the haughtiness and the arrogance that blocks us from seeing Hashem here in this world. Okay, let's go through our psukim. Perak Chav Gimel Pasuk Dalad, chapter 23, verse 4. Chapter 23, verse 4. It's in the Art Scroll Chumash on page 1054. 1054. Sure. Right. It doesn't look like such a coincidence. It looks like a very well planned, but, but 
Correct. So it, it depends whether you're reading it on the literal level or on the deeper level. On the literal level, this is a military campaign. They strategically knew when to attack us. They didn't fight our strong army. They came in a really, in violation of international law, so to say. They um, attacked the women and children from the rear. And they did that strategically. And that's evil. That's pure evil. Right? The Rav's other philosophy, the Rav writes in his Chumash, I'm not reading it to you, is that Amalek is not a genetic nation. Amalek is a philosophy. And as far as the Rav was concerned, even halachically, Hitler was Amalek. And, and now Hamas is Amalek. Those who are morally corrupt and depraved and who seek the annihilation of the Jewish people do so because they're morally bankrupt. That's on the, on the pshat level. The deeper level is that there's a spiritual battle going on. Because right, who do I today have a have an obligation to destroy a malik? How am I supposed to identify who is a malik? Do I have to literally? I have a mitzvah to go take a gun and kill a malik. We struggle. Two thousand and eighteen, we struggle to. How how can we accept that mitzvah? That's a fanatical mitzvah. Do we really believe that? We should, because it is a mitzvah, one that's not incumbent upon us today. But the spiritual um, part of it is very incumbent upon us, and that's. That's this notion of mikra, tachas hashemayim versus me'al hashemayim, b'shemayim ima'al. Okay, let's go back and look at these psukim. Perch of Gimel Pasuk Dalad, page 1054. And here the Torah tells us the following. Someone from the tribe of Moab or Ammon may not enter the Jewish people. Even to the 10th generation. This uh, prohibition doesn't expire. Even until the 10th generation, they cannot join the Jewish people. Advar Hashem, why? What did they do wrong? What did Ammon and Moab do wrong? Why can they not join the Jewish people? Rashi says, Lo yavo Ammoni, Lo Yisa Yisraelis. They cannot marry. Their male can't marry our females. Their females can marry our males. Ultimately, it's Ammoni, Velo Ammonis, Moavi, Velo Moavis. So, specifically talking about their male cannot marry our females. So why? What did they do so wrong? So the Torah tells us. You don't have to guess. The Torah says, I'll give you the reason. Moab, you should all know. Before we keep reading, what did Moab do? Who came from Moab and commissioned somebody? Bilam. Balak is the king of Moab and he hires Bilam and first to curse us. That didn't succeed. And later to, later to solicit us to violate our moral core. And that did succeed. There's a lot of lessons in that. So I understand. Moab heinously, egregiously attacked us, so we don't really want to intermarry with them. What did Ammon ever do against us? What did Ammon do? So listen to what the parasha says. It's amazing. You know what they did? They were inhospitable. We said, hey, can we cut through your backyard? It's a shortcut to shul. Won't take away from you, won't look in your window. Do you mind? Hey, we'll pay for it, but do you have some bread and water, some provisions? So the second half of the Pasuk, that Moab hired Bilam, I get. But for the first half of the Pasuk, you were inhospitable? For your lack of hospitality, I don't want that mixing into my DNA. Not only can you not get married, you can never get married. Now God didn't listen to Bilaam. And God transformed the curse to a bracha. Why did God do that? If you ever wonder, 
Does Judaism believe this or did the Christians steal it from us? What do the words literally mean? Ki Hashem lokecha. Hashem loves you. Hashem loves you. It's not going to let someone curse you. What parent stands around and lets someone else curse them? Hashem loves us. Don't ever doubt it. Not for one moment. Is Hashem also our king? Yes. But in a few weeks, we're going to start saying, Avinu malkeinu. We relate to him both mi'ava and me'ira, from love and from awe. He's both our king and our father, but which one comes first? He's avinu, before he's malkeinu. Ki ahev chashem lekecha. The Rebbe Hashem loves you, don't ever doubt it. He's not going to let someone curse you. Don't seek their peace or their welfare. Don't care about Amanu Moav. For your whole existence. For your whole existence. That's the whole section. Amanu Moav, don't marry him. Not only for three generations, for ten. Who are we prohibited to marry for three generations? The Mitzrim, the Egyptians. Why? They killed millions of our people. They turned our children into bricks. 210 years of persecution, oppression, slavery, pogroms, holocaust, genocide. Eh, give them three generations, then you can marry him. But Amon, they didn't let you cut through their backyard. You can never marry them. Isn't that amazing, the contrast? What the Mitzrim did was so much more heinous. And yet, three generations, it's out of their system, you could marry their kid. But Amon Moav, not only ten generations, forever, you've got to stay away. So let's look at this section a little bit. Let's look at this section a little bit. The Balaturim says, You know, there's a whole... If you go through, say, for Shmuel, and you want to understand the episode of when Shmuel comes to Yishai and says, I have a nevuah that one of your boys is going to be the next king... And Yishai has many boys, and they take him through all the boys, and one by one, Shmuel says, no, 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 not this one, not that one, not the other one. And Yishai says, those are my boys. He says, don't you have one more? He says, no, he's not eligible. What was going on there? What was going on there? So Chazal fill in the gap. From whom does David HaMelech descend? From Rus. Rus is Rus descend? From Moab. So they were interpreting the Pasuk at the time to mean that you're not allowed to let someone from Moab marry in, and therefore there's a psul, there's a pagam, there is a blemish in David's lineage, and therefore he's ineligible to be the king. And based in Chazal came and clarified, no, Moaviva lo Moavis, Amoniva lo Amonis, David Rus was eligible, and therefore David is eligible, and therefore he's revealed to be the king. They didn't come, they didn't come from Rus, they had a different lineage with Yishai. Yishai had different wives. So they came from a different lineage. So that's why they thought he was excluded, and in the end he was there. So that's why the um, Balaturim says, Ashur Kudmo and Gamatri is, is Hazcharim, the men. Why is that in fact the halacha? That you're allowed to marry a Moavis, if you meet a Moabite woman, and she has a good Shidduch resume, you can marry her. If you meet an Ammonis woman, and her resume impresses you, you can marry her. But no matter how impressive the Moavi or Amoni resume, they're out for generations and generations. Why the distinction? Well, the Torah itself told us it has to do with what? It has to do with the provisions. It has to do with what was provided. So what do we see? Who was the one who was supposed to come out and provide those provisions? Who should have given the bread and the water? 
So Rav Shechter in his Sefer, Rav Shechter on the Parsha, points out, when the Torah prohibits marriage to an Ammoni or Moavi, it reveals to us the reason. There's a Tanaitic dispute between Rav Shimon and Rav Yehuda regarding Darshin and Taim and Dekra. Do we expound on the reason for Pesukim, for mitzvahs? Ascertaining the reason for the mitzvah does constitute an important aspect of Torah study. It lets us glean the moral, ethical, or religious principle the Torah is trying to teach us. But the Tanaim argue regarding whether the reason for a mitzvah can regulate the application of the mitzvah. Does it only apply when we see the reason and it doesn't apply if we don't have the reason? Or not? That's the machlokas. So for example, there's a machlokas whether the restriction of taking the garment of a widow as security for her debt applies to a wealthy woman. The reason, says Rav Shimon, is that the creditor would have to return the garment to her each day. So it would give her a bad reputation among her neighbors. According to Rav Shimon, one would be able to exact security from a wealthy widow to whom he need not return the garment. We generally paskin, lo darshin on time dekra. The rationale of the mitzvah does not define the limit of its halacha. However, when the Torah gives the reason, when the Torah itself provides the reason, explicitly, even Rabbi Yehuda agrees, darshin on time dekra, that we can apply the reason. This is how the rabbis in the days of David HaMelech knew to expound the Pasuk above to limit the Ammoni and Moavi to men. Ammoni v'alo Ammonis and Moavi v'alo Ammonis. Why? Because it was customary for men and not women to greet travelers with bread and water. Therefore, the women of Ammon and Moav could not be blamed for being negligent. They were not inhospitable. It was never expected of them and therefore they're still eligible to marry in. It's most noteworthy that the Torah's vision of the private role of women paved the way for the admission of Rusa Moaviyah into Klal Yisrael. This, of course, led to the establishment of Malchus Beis David, which ultimately led to the com- will lead to the coming of Melech HaMashiach himself. Rav Shechter, in this essay, develops the notion that the whole way David HaMelech is born is that he descends from Rus. What made Rus eligible to join our people? Because she was excluded from the prohibition. What made her excluded from the prohibition? Because there was never an expectation of women because there was a sense that they would be more in a position of modesty. They were never as playing an external public role as having the expectation that they would be negotiating or practicing the diplomacy to be providing these provisions. So it's the modesty that is expected of women, which in the merit enabled Rus to marry into the people, which itself is the progenitor of Melech HaMashiach. And Rav develops this notion of innate sneas and following in Hashem's footsteps. God is a kel mistater, and we too should follow in those footsteps. Fine. Back to our parsha. So the Ramban here says exactly what I was telling you. That if you contrast the law with the Mitzri and the law of the Ammon and Moab, you see the power of a lack of hospitality. It's an unbelievable, I think it's an unbelievable thing. It's an unbelievable thing. That the Mitzri, with all that they did, with the persecution, the attempted genocide, three generations they're back. But Ammoni and Moavi can't come in. Moab, I understand, the systematic attempt also to bring us down. But why Ammon? Because they didn't give us provisions. They were inhospitable. They were ungracious. The Ramban here offers this insight. He says, Ammon are to be treated as harshly as Moab because their crime is as severe, maybe even more. They were utterly ungrateful, unappreciative, and thankless. You see, the people of Ammon and of Moab, why were they particular ungrateful? What did they have to be grateful? I keep saying they were ungrateful. They were inhospitable. What were they ungrateful for? Ammon and Moab. The Ramban points out here. What should they have been grateful for? We're running out of time, so I'm not reading it inside. What should they have been more grateful for? What enabled the existence of Ammon and Moab? Anyone remember the story of when the nations of Ammon and Moab are born? 
Yeah, exactly. When, when their ancestor Lot and his daughters were taken captive, it was our ancestor Avraham who didn't say, look, it doesn't apply to me, I'm safe, I'm secure, I can walk away. He risked his life to liberate them. And when they were destined to die during the destruction of Sodom, it was our great Zayda Avram who argued for their release, who advocated for their safety. And so as the Jewish people now, this nation who are born out of slavery and only recently emancipated are journeying through the desert and they come to these people whose only existence relies on the goodness of our great Zayda to, to not reciprocate. When we said, do you have anything to eat or anything to drink? We'll pay for it. Can you let us cut through your land? The ingratitude they displayed was so egregious that the Torah says, we can't afford to absorb it into our character. So important is the attribute of Hakara Satov, to identify the good others have done for us and to repay that good. So important that a nation that doesn't get it can't intermarry, can't join. We can't absorb their corrupt character into our DNA. Isn't that incredible? The Medrash goes even further, the Ramban says. What's amazing is, the people of Ammon and Moab could say, we're not the ingrates, because you didn't do that for us. You did that way back when. You never did anything for me, why do I have to pay you back? The Ramban says, you see from here, that when someone did something amazing, even for your ancestor, you should feel indebted for generations to come. Because you are the beneficiary of what was done for your ancestor, the sense of gratitude has to continue for generations. That sense of an attitude, of feeling, of feeling a thank you. And so these nations who didn't feel that gratitude, who didn't live with that sense of gratitude, we can't afford to take them into our people. Ay, ay, ay. Kliyakar and an Arachayim and a Ramban and there's so much more I wanted to say. We'll start with it in Tzashem. I'll make a note. It's exactly where we'll start from next year. Wishing everyone a fantastic week.